And good morning, Emmanuel. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 4. As you're turning there, a little dramatic music, please. Nathan, you did perfect. All right. All right. When I say dramatic music, we're going to go dun, dun, dun. Okay? Try again. Let's have some dramatic music. Well done. Okay. Ruth chapter 4. You've waited almost two months for the exciting conclusion of the book of Ruth, but wait no longer. This morning, we will complete our study through this Old Testament love story, which is far more than a love story. As we come into chapter 4, the conclusions of Ruth are more slay than one of those M. Night Shyamalan, however you say his name, movies. Uh, the, the conclusions here are more slay. Lex, where are you? You asked me to use this word slay. I'm not even sure I'm using it right, but apparently that's a hip term these days. So these conclusions are more slay than an M. Night Shyamalan movie with really amazing redemptive themes that I cannot wait for us to see together. But before we get to chapter four, we got to do a quick review of where we are in this story, okay? So the curtain opens on Ruth chapter one in the days of the judges, a very dark time in Israel's history. In those days, a famine took place causing Naomi and Elimelech along with their two sons, to leave Bethlehem and travel to Moab in search of food. Once in Moab, this family faces one devastation after another. Elimelech, the father of the family, dies suddenly, and then his two sons die, leaving Naomi widowed with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth clings to Naomi, vowing that nothing but death will separate the two of them, but these two widows face two problems that the whole book of Ruth seeks to resolve. Those two problems are food. How are we going to eat? Second problem is family. How are we going to be provided for long-term without an heir? Well, the famine lifts, and they go back to Bethlehem, and when Naomi is reacquainted with old friends back in Bethlehem, in her grief, she says, don't call me Naomi any longer. That name meant sweetness or pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. She went on to say, I left Bethlehem full, but I have come back empty, or so she thinks. And the curtain closes on Ruth chapter 1, just as the barley harvest is beginning in Jerusalem. Chapter 2 describes a day in the fields where Ruth takes advantage of the work to eat, welfare available through the Jewish law. And it just so happened that the field where she lands in to glean from belongs to a relative of Elimelech's. His name is Boaz. Now, summing up the chapter, Boaz lavishly provides food for Naomi and Ruth. Uh, so th by the end of chapter 2, food is very lavishly provided, but there's still a problem because the chapter ends with Ruth, the Moabite, still living with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Chapter 3, which I am so very glad that we have worked through already, is a night at the threshing floor. 
and it describes Ruth following Naomi's advice who concocted a rather shady scheme to sneak into Boaz's room under the cover of darkness at a time when Boaz is all alone and make it unquestionably known to Boaz that she's available to be more to him than just a charity worker in his field. Ruth lies down in his bed, waits for him to wake up. When he wakes up, she essentially proposes marriage to him, saying, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Boaz responds, summing up, uh, I'll, do, I'll marry you in a heartbeat, but there's still a problem because there's another redeemer who's closer to Boaz in the clan structure, and this other man has first dibs to marry Ruth and to purchase Elimelech's property. So Boaz sends Ruth away before the sun rises with another large gift of barley and promises that in the morning, I will settle this matter of who is going to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And when the curtain closes on chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi are waiting. They're waiting with decisions that are out of their hands to see, is this other man going to redeem Ruth? Or will Boaz be given the opportunity to redeem her? And today is the day when all of this will come to light. All right, so we're going to go through this uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, again, trying to put ourselves into the story and feel something of what these characters would have felt as these events were happening, as if we're in Bethlehem with them happening. So chapter 4 and verse 1. Here's what God's Word says. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. All right, so right out of the gate, Redeemer, or Kinsman Redeemer, that's a category that we have been thinking about all the way since through chapter 2. But we've got to get a very clear understanding of what a Redeemer is if we're going to understand what's happening in this chapter. It's typically translated Kinsman Redeemer. Kinsman is nearest of kin, a relative to someone. So for Ruth, this is the nearest adult male relative to Elimelech and his sons. Redeemer, this man has the first rights to redeem. Ruth and Naomi in this situation. Because of his blood relation to Elimelech, this man has first rights to purchase his property. This was the law that God had set up for his people if and when they found themselves in tragic circumstances. So let's look really quickly at two Old Testament laws, one regarding land, another regarding preserving one's name in cases of death. So first, land. What you need to know is owning land in this particular day was essential. It was vital. It was a really big deal. Land was everything. Therefore, God made provision in his law to give lots and lots and lots of opportunities for people, for families to be able to keep their land. If a family lost their land, they lost their livelihood. If they fell on hard times, they could sell their land, but they maintained rights to be able to purchase that land back if and when they became prosperous again. So this is from Leviticus 25, starting in verse 25. It says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, then let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. That's God's law regarding purchasing and repurchasing land because, again, land is vital. It's important. It's a vital part of one's livelihood. Well, fast forward to Deuteronomy 25. Now, I will say a word here. These laws aren't exactly being implemented in Ruth chapter 4, but catch the heart of what God had set up in his law, and you will see these principles are being followed in Ruth chapter 4. This is how God, through his law, provided for marriage, particularly in cases where there was not an heir. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead man's brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So God is going to provide to make sure that one's name continues even after a man dies without a son. Verse 7, and if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, get this, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. How about that? <laughs> Thanks, Heather Young, for pointing that passage out to me. I appreciate it, sister. So this is a picture of shame. It's honorable to provide for one's family. So God has provision to keep both land in the family and to keep one's name going if a man dies without a son. He's made provision in his law. So back to Ruth chapter 4. Boaz is out the door in verse 1, first thing in the morning because he has promised, today is the day that I'm going to resolve this matter, and he wastes no time. He's out the door first thing, and he goes straight down to the town gate, the place where business ventures happen. And what a coincidence, this other man just happens by at just the opportune time, and Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down. And the picture here, friend, right? That's a Hebrew idiom. And I want you to notice that the author never gives us this guy's name. <laughs> Surely Boaz knows his name, right? This is a close relative. And the author of this story likely knows his name too. Do you remember all the significance given to other names in this story? Elimelech's name meant my God is king. Uh, 
Naomi's name means pleasant, change tomorrow, which means bitter. Their children's name, Malin and Killian, is sickly and pining. But this man does not, he's not given a name in our story. It's like saying, Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Who Cares, Mr. Insignificant. The point is kind of to cast light on this guy is fairly insignificant. And this is the picture. Boaz says, why don't you come over here and have a seat next to me, friend, buddy, pal, partner? Come sit right over here next to me. Uh, and so Mr. No Name goes over and has a seat next to him. Verse 2. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. These elders serve as official witnesses to the conversation that is about to take place. So here's what's likely. You've got 10 elders sitting immediately around, but then likely a growing crowd of people who gather around who are observing this business transaction that's about to go down. So by the end of this scene, you've got a crowd of people standing around and observing this business transaction and Boaz begins to speak and Boaz is so sly watch what he says verse 3 then he said to the Redeemer Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech so I thought I would tell you of it and say buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, this is an offer that Mr. No Name cannot refuse, and Boaz just lays it out there on a golden platter. Remember, Naomi cannot purchase land herself because she's female, and so she needs a redeemer to purchase it for her in order for her to have it back. And so this redeemer has opportunity now to acquire Elimelech's land. And it's a no-brainer for Mr. So-and-so. This is the easiest decision he has ever had to make. Basically, what Mr. So-and-so gets out of the deal is a great piece of land. And you remember, land is vital. Land is very important. It's everything. He can own the land. It'll now be part of his estate that he can pass on to his sons, who can pass on to their sons, and so on and so forth. Having more land, he can produce more food and increase his net work. And in the years to come, he gets a great inheritance for his children to farm and increase their net worth. All he has to give in return is to take in Naomi a woman who is past childbearing age, under his roof and care for her and provide for her as a widow. Since she can't bear children herself, it means that the land will be passed on to Mr. No Name's sons. Sure, it'll take some assets, I think, to care for Naomi, but in the long run, this is a great deal. It's a no-brainer decision. He doesn't even have to walk away and think it over for a few days and get back with them. And he said at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. I'll do it. Yes, absolutely. I'm all in. Where do I sign on the dotted line? Now, we don't know, but imagine, just imagine with me, if Ruth and Naomi had snuck into the crowd and they're listening in on this little business transaction taking place, and Mr. No Name says... I'll do it. Where do I sign? 
and our hearts just kind of sink. Can you imagine the look on Ruth's face? Mr. Who Cares just positioned himself to take this deal. What in the world is happening? Personally, I want to look at Boaz at this stage and say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? It would be maddening if the book of Ruth ended in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 4, and this unnamed fellow moves in to scoop up this deal, and Ruth and Mr. What's-His-Name ride off into the sunset together. No. Boaz sits there dumbfounded. I mean, you want to talk about Naomi being bitter. She's no longer bitter. She's fuming. What were you thinking? Don't call me bitter. Call me livid. Now, thankfully, Boaz knows exactly what he's doing, and this chapter does not end in verse 4. So, verse 5. I think we need a little dramatic music here. Good. All right. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay, so Boaz has read Deuteronomy 25, and Boaz knows exactly what he's doing here in verse 5. He says, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention one little piece of information, a detail that might be important to you. You see, it's not just Naomi who's in this picture. It's not just caring for a widow who's past childbearing age that you need to provide for. There's also Ruth. Now, Ruth is still of childbearing age, and if you take Ruth into your family, then you're going to have the responsibility to provide her with children, including an heir, a son, who will receive the land that you're purchasing. All right, so all of a sudden, this land that he's about to purchase, that he had envisioned being passed down to his own biological sons, he's now seeing the whole picture, that his sons won't likely get any of that land. Instead, the land is going to go to Ruth, that Moabite woman. And hey, you remember those Moabites, right? That's that whole nation of people that caused 24,000 Israelite men to be slaughtered because they lured them into sexual immorality. That's right. Ruth, the Moabite son, will receive the land, and Mr. No-Name's children won't get a single bit of it. They will not benefit at all from this deal. I just want to make sure that you understand the whole picture before you sign your name on this dotted line. So does that change anything about your decision? Does it make any difference at all with Ruth now added to the equation? And after that, I just have to say, that a boy, Boaz. <laughs> he knew exactly, exactly what he was doing. All right, so verse 6, cue up the dramatic music. All right, this, this is the moment right here. Is Boaz's approach going to work? How is Mr. No Name going to respond? Is he still interested in purchasing this field now with these added details explained? Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And this is the moment that we've been waiting for since the beginning of the book, 
Ruth and Naomi in need of food, in need of family, in need of a redeemer to step in and provide for them. And here in this verse, Mr. What's-His-Name steps off the scene and Boaz receives a clear path for redemption and for marriage. This is where I uh, envision sort of the orchestral music begins to swell in the background. It gets real loud, verses 7 and 8. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. No spitting in the face in this one, but a taking off of the sandal. This is a picture that represented the right being given to another to be able to purchase the property. It's a picture of where my foot once tread in this sandal. Now I'm giving you the right for your foot to tread where I once had the right to tread. And so Mr. No Name takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz, thus finalizing the rights for the transaction. And if I'm envisioning it, when Mr. Who Cares says to Boaz, I cannot redeem it, buy it yourself, I picture a huge grin, like an ear-to-ear grin coming onto Boaz's face. And the crowd goes wild. Boaz eventually calms the crowd. The orchestral music kind of fades in the background to a nice soft lull for Boaz to give one final impassioned speech his very last words in the book of Ruth. You ready to hear them? Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. So we got the land, but then, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Now pause right here and think from where Ruth has been at the beginning of our story to where she is now at the end of our story. Ruth chapter 1 verse 22, chapter 2 verse 2, and chapter 2 verse 6 all refer to her as Ruth the Moabite. Chapter 2 verse 10, Ruth the foreigner. Chapter 2 verse 13, Ruth the servant who isn't even one of Boaz's servants. Ruth chapter 3 verse 9, Ruth your servant, your willing slave wanting marriage. So we've gone from Ruth being a Moabite, a foreigner, a slave, and a servant to now Ruth chapter 4 verse 10, wife. This Gentile, Moabite, foreign, slave woman grafted into the people of Israel through marriage. Why? Boaz explains, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The problem at the beginning of the book, will there be an heir? Boaz says, yes, I will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Today, you are all witnesses. And now listen to how the elders and the crowd respond to this. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. They affirm the transaction and then they proceed to pronounce blessing after blessing over Ruth and Boaz saying, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. 
Now, that might not sound like a great blessing, but boy, that is an amazing blessing to pronounce over this couple. Rachel and Leah, you talk about a prayer for fertility. Between the two of them, Rachel and Leah, they had 12 children, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a Moabite woman having a blessing pronounced over her that just as God was faithful to bring about the 12 tribes of Israel, may God be faithful to Ruth, this Moabite woman in your home. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. That's a reference back to Ruth chapter 1 verse 2 where Elimelech and Naomi were both Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Ephrathite is a synonym for for an Israelite from Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Now, I'll just say here, if, if we had a little bit more time, we could dive into some of the background of Tamar and her story, but to be honest, I think we probably covered enough shady Old Testament for one series already. But just really briefly skimming over the top of this one, it's Genesis 38 for those of you who are interested in taking a deeper look. But Tamar's husband had died and she ends up having children with her father-in-law, Judah. One of those children is Perez. Here's the point, I think, though. Tamar was a Canaanite woman, not from Israel. And similar to Ruth, what you have is the line of Israel continuing through the Old Testament through non-Jewish women. And that same prayer that Tamar did that, now uh, the prayer is that Ruth would carry on the, the name through her offspring. So that's the way the elders in the crowd respond to the business transaction brought about at the city gate. They cheer and they pronounce these great blessings over this couple. And so now we're just positioned, we're just ready for it to happen, right? We've all arrived at the climax. Boaz has stepped up. He's made clear his intentions. Verse 13, cue the dramatic music. This is it right here. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. You know what fascinates me about this? Like all the buildup, like all the tension, all the minute details given. You've got a whole chapter describing one day in the field. You've got another whole chapter describing a few hours one night at the threshing floor. And then in one verse, you have a wedding and a baby just like that. The resolution to the dilemma of the whole book comes in one verse. They got married and they had a baby. But did you notice how the author framed it and wrote of it intentionally? Pay attention to how it's worded or, or you'll miss it. Ruth became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. Now step back for a second. We have seen the Lord, Yahweh, in every detail of this story all the way through, but there's only two times in the book of Ruth that the narrator brings the Lord from the background into the forefront of what's happening. The first one was in Ruth chapter 1 verse 6. God is named to be the one doing the action there. 
that verse is this. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the, or from the country of Moab, for she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord did that. The Lord provided food. Remember, that's one of the two main needs in the whole book of Ruth, food, and it was the Lord that provided it. The other need in the book is family. And the narrator is very intentional to say, the Lord gave Ruth conception. I think because the narrator wants us to understand that it is God who meets all of the needs of his people. It's God alone who's able to meet the deepest needs that we have in our life. Whatever those deepest needs are, it is God who is able to meet those needs. Amen? All right. Then you get to verse 14, and there's a birthday party happening. There's a bunch of ladies gathered around celebrating with Naomi. Here's what they say. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. See, they know who the praise goes to. It goes to the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. This child Little Obed, this child is going to be the one who carries on the family line. He's the one who will provide for Naomi's future and the future of her family after she's gone. So they say, may his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Seven, seven, that number for perfection or completion in the Old Testament. You think about it. This is Naomi who returned back from uh, to Bethlehem from Moab with a Moabite daughter-in-law standing right beside her and said to the women of Bethlehem, I have nothing. I've lost everything. I went away full. I come back empty. Every time I think of that, I'm like, Ruth is standing right beside you when you're saying that. I mean, what am I, chopped liver? Like, you come back empty with nothing? What am I to you, nothing? Well, the women of Bethlehem are looking at Naomi, and what they notice is that in Ruth... You have something better than the best sons. You have something better than you have ever fathomed. She's better to you than had you had seven sons. And they know that she loves Naomi and is committed to her and has been very good to her. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. It's a touching picture. We've got a grandmother holding this precious baby boy. I mean, who could imagine when we started Ruth 1 that it would end this way and get so good? And at this point, we kind of think, let's just gather our things. All the tensions got resolved. What a great ending. We start to gather our things and leave because the story's over. But then, maybe you've been to one of those movies that begin rolling credits and you start to walk out of the theater and then you hear a voice come back onto the screen and there's one of those post-credit scenes, those stingers, an end tag, a credit cookie. There's essentially an added scene to let you know, wait a minute, this story's not quite over yet. That's kind of what I picture happening here. The story seemed complete 
it seemed done. All the tensions got resolved, but there's just a little bit more to let us know that this baby, this child, this provision from the Lord is going to be a provision towards Naomi and brothers and sisters eventually towards us that go way beyond our wildest dreams. Here's Shamalamalamalamalan at work, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David. What? Uh, wait a minute. This, this is more than just a little love story between Ruth and Boaz. This was how God in the midst of one of the darkest times in Israel's history, the days of the judges, was going to provide a way for the greatest king in Israel's history to be born. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. Did you see that coming? This is shocking. God used a Moabite woman as a result of an Israelite who left the promised land and died, and then whose wife becomes bitter at all she'd lost. God is going to bring hope through an otherwise hopeless situation, and he's going to do it through this kind of messed up little family so that we would have the greatest king in our entire history. Who would have thought that this would come from this little obscure, no-name, grief-stricken, kind of shady love story? And just to make sure that the narrator gets his point across, he or she ends the book of Ruth with a genealogy of 10 generations leading up to the birth of King David. Think of the symbolism just in that 10 generations of life and death and barrenness before the birth of David. So the author ends the book with this genealogy, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The book that began in the days when the judges ruled in Israel ends with an introduction to the most famous king in Israel's history. And we realize this whole story has been about something way bigger than we could have imagined. How about them apples? <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? This is an amazing story. So let's step back and process a little bit. Why has God chosen for this story to be preserved in our Bibles for thousands of years? Is it just for our entertainment? No way. There is a much deeper issue and reason here. And I want us to see, I want us to see and really think about how the story of Ruth 
points us to a much bigger story of how God is going to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. The whole story of humanity is a grand story of God seeking out and saving the lost and redeeming a people to be his own possession. This book, the book of Ruth, is about redemption. And the word redeem, it simply means to buy, to purchase, or to set free by paying a price. And the history of humanity all the way since Genesis chapter 3 is essentially the story of how God is going to set his people free by paying a price to redeem them. It's the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell. And I want us to see how the book of Ruth fits into the bigger story of God's marvelous redemption of his people. Through this book, we learn what a redeemer is. There's three requirements that one has to meet in order to be a redeemer. The first requirement is if you want to redeem somebody, you must have the right to redeem them. I might have compassion on Ruth and Naomi in their situation and want to move in and help, but I am not a blood relative. I don't have the right to move in and redeem them. You got to have the right to redeem. And that's the question of this chapter with Boaz. That's the, the question that it seeks to answer. Who has the right to redeem Ruth and Naomi in this situation? Mr. No Name has the right. In fact, he's got first rights because he is the nearest living male relative to them. Boaz has the second right behind Mr. No Name. Second requirement, you not only have to have the right, you have to have the resources to redeem. The redeemer had to be able to pay the redemption price. The redeemer must have resources to be able to buy property, to purchase land, then to take in the family and care for them. He might have the right biologically to do it, but if he's dead broke, he's got to walk away. I don't have the resources. You got to have the right. You got to have the resources. Thirdly, you have to have the resolve to redeem. And it's this third requirement that Mr. No Name is missing in this situation. It's clear he's got the right. He's the closest living male relative. It seems most likely that he had the resources because his first response is, yep, I'll do it. But he lacked that third requirement, the resolve to do it. For whatever reason, it would impair his own inheritance and he didn't want to do it. And so he backs out of the deal. But Boaz steps up meeting all three requirements. He's got the right to redeem with Mr. No Name out of the picture. He's got the resources to redeem and he most definitely has the resolve to redeem. And that's why he is the redeemer in Ruth and Mr. No Name has his name excluded from the pages of scripture because he did not have the resolve to redeem. We're going to come back to those and think about Jesus in light of those requirements in just a minute. But first, I want to show you five incredible blessings of being redeemed. Did you notice how Ruth in the end of this chapter is hardly anywhere in the picture? Like there's a party going on. There's all these ladies gathered around celebrating. But who is holding the baby? Naomi. Naomi's holding the baby because that's what grandmothers do, right? They, they hold the grandchildren. Well, the whole spotlight isn't on at the end. It's not on Boaz and Ruth. The whole spotlight turns to Naomi and Obed at the end. Why? 
I believe because there is a picture that the author is trying to get across to us and in our minds, uh, moving from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, that we might have a clear picture of the incredible benefits of redemption. There's five of them I'll go through quickly. The benefits of redemption in Naomi's life, it shows us that God brings his people first from death to life. Think about the transformation that's happened. The book of Ruth opens with three funerals, and it ends with a wedding and a baby, death to life. And to use Naomi's words from Ruth chapter 1, the Almighty is sovereign over both. God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over life. And he brings his people from death to life. Life triumphs over death in redemption. Second benefit, God brings his people from being cursed to being being blessed. Chapter 1, Naomi had the curse of all curses in ancient Israel. She had no heir to carry on her family line. And at the end, did you notice she's just getting prayed blessing after blessing after blessing over her. God moves his people from curse to blessing. Third benefit, God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. Can you just imagine the smile that was likely on Naomi's face at the end of the book? I mean, it's almost like she's saying to these ladies, you know what? Never mind with calling me bitter anymore. You can now call me ecstatic. She's overjoyed. She's been moved from bitterness to happiness. Fourth benefit, God brings his people from emptiness to fullness. You remember at the end of chapter one, we have Naomi saying to the women in Bethlehem, I've got nothing. The Lord sent me away full, but I come back empty. And now Ruth at the end of, or uh, now Naomi at the end of chapter four through Ruth, her hands are not empty. She's got a baby on her lap and her arms are filled with the promise and hope and life and a future given to her by God from emptiness to fullness. And the women of Bethlehem are saying to Naomi, you have everything. You have more than you ever could have had even if the Lord had given you seven sons. Fifth benefit, and then finally, God brings his people from despair to hope. You know, we end the book not gazing back on the past and all the trials and tragedies and sufferings and difficulties. We end the book looking towards the future of where this line is going to go. It's going to go to King David. And this is where we are reminded that actually Ruth chapter 4 verse 22 is actually not the end of the story. I want to invite you to fast forward with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I really wish the Old Testament saints would have been able to see where this story was going to go eventually, but they would have had to stick around in the theater for a really long time before they'd get this conclusion. But this, this, brothers and sisters, was going to change everything. This little four-chapter story of this small, insignificant family and these events in the Old Testament is pointing us to the absolute greatest story in the world. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. 
Now that is where Ruth chapter 4 ends, but Matthew keeps going. David, the father of Solomon, and so on and so forth, all the way down to verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There is a much better king being pointed to than the one who concludes Ruth chapter 4 with King David. This line is going to go all the way to King Jesus. The book of Ruth and the redemption of she and Naomi through Boaz is not just in our Bibles to warm the cockles of our heart through a nice little romantic love story. Boaz is in our Bibles to point us to Christ on the pages of redemptive history. Now think again with me about those three requirements needed in order to be a redeemer and think of Christ in light of those requirements. Does Christ have the right to redeem us? Does he have the right to redeem us? The book of Ruth points us to the day when God, in all of his supreme glory, would take on human flesh. And when he would dwell among us, Jesus came like us. He was born among us. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. He came like us, near to us, kin to us, a kinsman redeemer. And as a result, he has every right to redeem us. Well, does he have the resources to redeem us? He might have the right, but does he have the resources to redeem us? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the one who has all authority over heaven and earth. This is the one who came with authority over sin and over death and over suffering and over the grave. This is the one who would say to the wind, be still. He would say to lepers, be clean. He would say to the sick, be healed. He'd say to the blind, see. He'd say to the lame, walk. He'd say to demons, flee. And he'd say to the dead, rise. He has the right to redeem us. He's a kinsman redeemer. He undoubtedly has the resources to redeem us. Does he have the resolve to redeem us? Does he have the resolve to redeem us? He takes up a wooden cross. He didn't take up a cross because he had to. He didn't take it up because he's obligated to, but because he desires obedience to his father more than he desires his own life. And he takes up not just a wooden cross, but he takes up your sins and my sins. As wicked and evil and vile as they are, he takes them up. He takes all the curses brought on because of our sins. The eternal damnation that is due to us as a penalty for sinning against the holy God. Jesus takes all the penalty, all the curse, all the wrath of God deserved by us upon himself. And he endures the cross on our behalf. Praise God. He has the right to redeem us. He's got the resources to redeem us. And you better bet he's got the resolve to redeem us. And Jesus Christ has paid the price for our redemption. Not only does he have the right, the resources, and the resolve, not only did, but he has redeemed us. It's not something that he's longing to do. He 
has redeemed us. 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed. You were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He's not skimpy. Now, don't miss this. This is not a picture of you or I somehow catching the eye of God as if there's something attractive in us that he sees in us. The reality is this. Everything in you and everything in me repels a holy God from us. There is nothing within us to draw a holy God to us. We have all turned against him. All. Do you know what it is to sin against the holy God? We have all turned against him. We wanted nothing to do with him. We turned our back on him. And yet he pursues us. You think about it. In Matthew chapter 1, there are four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus before we get to Mary, and not one of them deserved to be there. Now, the men don't deserve to be there either, ladies, but check this out. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, Tamar, who committed incest with her father-in-law in the line of Jesus. Then you get down to verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, and Ruth, the Gentile Moabite, who makes a forward advance to Boaz. Then you get down to verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba, the one who commits adultery with King David. Leads me to ask a question, what in the world are these four women doing in the genealogical line that leads to the perfect son of God? Brothers and sisters, get this. They are there for the exact same reason that you or I or any other person would ever have their name, their actual name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're there for the same reason, and it's not because they've earned it, it's not because we've earned it, it's not because they or we have done anything to deserve it. It is only exclusively because of the grace of Jesus Christ who came to save the worst of sinners. He came to take away our sins, the dirtiest, the most despised, the most sinful. We get into this line, not on our own merit, but because we have a redeemer. Christ Jesus, the perfect son of God who redeems us with his own precious blood. I think my daughters would say of that, slay. <laughs> that is slay. <laughs> Really quick, how do we respond and apply the book of Ruth? Well, how about this? How about we marvel? How about we worship and rejoice at the providence of God and the outstanding benefits of being redeemed through the precious blood of Christ Jesus, our Lord? Is this not the best news in the world? All right. 
Secondly, and if it is to you the best news in the world, let me just ask you a question. Are you presently living like this news has got you? Are you presently living a life putting on display, I'm a redeemed one? Can others see in you a life that has been radically transformed by the amazing, wonderful grace of our Redeemer? Through Christ's redemption, similar to Naomi, remember Naomi moved from being dead to being alive or from experiencing all this death to life? Well, through new birth, recreation through Jesus, you've actually moved from being dead <laughs> to being alive. You've moved from being under his curse to being under his blessing. You've moved from bitterness to joy, from emptiness to fullness, and from despair to hope. So, can other people look at your life and see what's really true of them? Redeemed. Blessed. Dead to alive, cursed to blessing, bitter to joy, empty to full, despair to full of hope. If you're in Christ Jesus, then you are redeemed. His precious blood has redeemed you. It's ransomed you. No matter what your earthly circumstances presently consist of, your eternity is secure and filled with wonder and hope and good promise beyond description that's gonna be yours forever. You really are blessed through redemption. And I'll say you're even more blessed than Naomi with Obed in her arms and on her lap. Her real redemption is pointing to your greater redemption in the blood of Jesus. It's pointing to it. Now, if she had friends that could notice about her, Naomi, you are so blessed. It's like they're singing blessing over her and, and ascribing praise to God for what had been done. Do we do that with each other? Do we look at each other and be like, man, you are blessed. I mean, blessed. Millions of people in this world don't have what you have. You are blessed. All right. Last way to apply this, if you're not yet redeemed, and in a room this size, I know not everybody here is a believer. I would just say, don't you want to be? Like, don't you want to be? Why in the world would any sane person turn their face away and turn their life away from such good news? Come to the one, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who offers you, a wrecked sinner like the rest of us, redemption. Blessing, welcome, forgiveness, hope for your future, and abundant life forever and ever. This is what the book of Ruth, it's all about. The precious, beautiful, wonderful, and amazing reality of our redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Redeemer. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that this story in our Old Testaments would really help us to grab hold of how precious and wonderful being redeemed really is. And we pray that we would be a people who wouldn't be able to keep silent about your goodness and your greatness and your kindness to redeem us. You are a great God. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.